Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, I'm very excited about this conversation today. In some ways, this conversation is kind of a summation of a whole lot of things that we've been talking about for maybe about 18 months on this show. But we're very excited to have with us a Kurt Anderson, author currently of Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. Uh, you, of course, know Kurt Anderson because you listen to the station uh, where Studio 360 uh, airs on Sunday afternoons and Wednesday nights. Uh, he's uh, many other things besides that, uh, author and founder of Spy Magazine and many other things as well. We'll come to all those things. So, Kurt, first of all, thanks for doing this. My complete pleasure. And, I, you know, I'm, I was trying to figure out where to start here, you know, because it's um, th- this really is kind of a summation of, of a lot of conditions that obtain in America. Uh, to me, one thing that one thought that I had is that, you know, a symbol of the stuff that you're talking about is that there's something on cable television called the History Channel. Although its current lineup includes ancient aliens, pawn stars and American pickers uh, and very much very little of what you could actually call history. Um, And and in a way, that's one of the things you're getting at right now, right? That that these kind of alternative narratives are crowding out anything that's fact checkable and real. Well, indeed. And and again, each of these things by themselves, like the History Channel running those shows rather than history, and, and other nonfiction, ostensibly nonfiction cable channels running documentaries about mermaids and so forth, each of them by themselves, oh, that's just one thing. Oh, that's not so terrible. Oh, that's not so terrible. But in the aggregate, uh, they are, yes, indeed, part of what I'm talking about, which is is this these blurred and often erased lines between the factually true and the wishful or fictional. You know, at any given moment in America's life, there seem to be these stories. So here it is today. What's today? October 19th or something. Um, We've got, uh, among other things, Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, chiding the press for politicizing the story of John Kelly's son, although it would appear that that's kind of a Lewis Carroll-like inversion of reality. Donald Trump, in the course of kind of defending his own behavior and his own uh, false claims about other presidents, was the one who brought up John Kelly's son politically. You've got uh, a conversation we've been having about whether Melania uh, Trump uh, has actually been replaced by a body double, something that's been taken very seriously uh, on uh, on the interwebs. You've got the soldier's widow story, which is also part of that Trump story, uh, a lot of back and forth about you know what Donald Trump said and what he's promised. I, I mean, I could go on and on, but it like on on and we're still going through the whole take a knee uh, issue in the NFL, which seems very much uh, in tune with also what you're writing about. It seems like in any, every given day now, we're having a conversation about reality, which wouldn't even have been that recognizable, say, 30 years ago, or, or would it? I mean, because you say this is a 500 year history. Yeah, no, I don't think it would have been recognizable 30 years ago, uh, or. I mean, in 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 the sense that it is now the White House is now the epicenter of uh, the propagation of untruths and fantasies in such a way that it wouldn't that would have been shocking to us four years ago. Mm. But 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 so I think no, it's been a long journey toward this uh, moment. Um, but I think even twenty five thirty years ago, back when uh, uh, 
Daniel Moynihan was saying you're entitled to your own opinions but not your own facts, uh, when that was still kind of a joke when mm-hmm. he said that. Um, that that has it has become obviously much truer today. And then speaking of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she quoted that line the other day in as she was standing at the podium in the White House uh, press room. Uh, <laughs> uh, purveying some version of untruth. <laughs> so on, on the other hand, I think you do a very good job of documenting the way in which Americans have for a long time uh, cultivated, uh, cultivated a real taste for arcana and esoterica and this notion that we don't know all the facts. The, the official version of things is is withholding really important information from us. Um, and one of the people that you quote uh, a lot in your book and, and is Richard Hofstadter. Um, one of the one one of the stories that I, I love from Paranoid Style is he talks about. Um, a group of men from Baghdad, Arizona, who drove all the way to Washington in 64 to testify against a proposed gun control legislation championed by by Tom Dodd. It was a senator from Connecticut. Um, and it was just to tighten the rules regulating the purchase and sale of mail-order firearms. Obviously, Oswald had gotten his monolicker Carcano uh, in this way. It seemed kind of crazy. Uh, one of these Arizonans um, wouldn't see it that way. And testifying, before, they'd driven like through the night to get there. And he, he said the bill represented quote, a further attempt by a subversive power to make us part of one world socialistic government. Uh, he alleged, alleged the measure would create chaos and embolden the enemies of the United States in their plot to gain control over the levers of government. And I mean, it occurred, this was 1964, but it really could have been, you know, a post Vegas shooting conversation. Absolutely. And but of course, the thing is, back when Hofstetter wrote uh, Paranoid Cells uh, and, 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 and back then when the uh, John Birch Society was being marginalized by the grownups running the conservative movement, um, the, 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 these these were freakish outliers as opposed to people who have beliefs and ways of understanding the world. Uh, who who are in the very mainstream of the Republican Party? So that that has changed. Yes, the the seeds were there. But if you if you if we'd been talking in 1964 about um, well, will people who who like these nuts who drove all night to Washington to uh, uh, be against the modest gun control uh, legislation of the time? be running the Republican Party one day, that would have seemed uh, impossible and improbable. Um, We have to sort of try to put our fingers on a few of the turning points there. Um, One of them, I think, uh, that you point out very admirably is happens not in the world of reality, but in the world of fictional or fictionalized reality. I mean, in about 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 10 years from that time, from that 1964 hearing, you start to see movies which feature some of the most attractive and glamorous men in Hollywood as guys who believe in conspiracies. So you've got Beatty uh, in the parallax view. You've got Redford in two movies, right? Three Days of the Condor and then All the President's Men, where he plays an actual real-life newsman covering or an actual real-life uh, conspiracy. But there's a way in which, yes, in 64, as you say, those guys would be marginalized. They were wackos who drove, you know, with stopping only to pee from Baghdad, Arizona, so they could testify to Tom Dodd. Now, the person who believes in these alternative fact sets correctly in the arguments of all of those movies are, you know, people we would like to be. We would like to be Robert Redford. Correct. No, the heroes became the conspiracy theorists and conspiracy theorists 
ceased to be entirely a, a pejorative. Um, at the, and, and of course, we, we must stipulate, as you just did about Watergate, there are real conspiracies. We're not saying there are no real conspiracies. It is the reflexive default idea that everything that somehow uh, is bad or wrong or, or, or you disagree with is the result of a, of a conspiracy is the is, is the unfortunate reflex that we developed. And, and yes, beginning in the 70s, in, as Watergate uh, was exposed, as the other kinds of federal agency malfeasance spying on anti-war groups and so forth was being exposed. Um, and then Hollywood said, yes, and then some. And, and here we have Warren Beatty and uh, other people um, playing characters exposing these conspiracies. That I'm not I don't know that it was definitive or dispositive in spreading the idea that uh, looking at the world this way is correct, but it didn't hurt. Right. And, and the thing that was a kind of a 10 year ramp to that point, I would say, would be the Kennedy assassination. We were talking a little bit about this before we went on the air. But because of certain aspects of the inconclusiveness of it and certain ways in which the media was working differently than media had in the past and a million other different reasons, this door swung open that allowed kind of critics of settled reality to have an awful lot of sway over the public's understanding of an event. How, how big a turning point is is JFK. I think it is in in terms of certainly uh, the conspiracy a part of 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 alternate realities that people passionately believe the, the big one in our in our history of the last 60 years. Of course it came during the 60s when all other various other kinds of alternative realities were being legitimized and the previous uh, stigma attached to alternative realities, whether it's about medicine or health or magic versus science and so on and so forth, th- those were all uh, uh, being um, uh, the, the discredited. The stigma was being discredited. So, so it was a time when suddenly uh, the, the man and what the man was putting out, in, this, in the case of JFK's assassination, the Warren Commission, um, w- was supposed to be Doubt, not just doubted or or looked at carefully, but uh, disbelieved because the man and and the system and the mainstream were um, putting it out. So uh, then we go through Watergate, and then I think it's 1978. Cicela Bach writes the book Lying, and one of her fundamental arguments here in, in Lying is, you know, what if you lived in a world where essentially lies were so commonplace. Uh, and and distrust of reality was so commonplace that you just had to fact check everything. You had to check every single thing that everybody said to you. Well, she says you'd go crazy. You couldn't function that way. You know, you ulti- She says ultimately one of the things you have to have is trust. You have to figure out whom you can trust, and you that you, you can trust these people. Um, and I don't know. In some ways, the the impossible world that she was describing in '78 is the world that we function in right now. Every fact seems to have a counterfact. Well, it it ha- yes, indeed, and 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 it's not. I mean, is is Donald Trump and the Trump administration symptom or cause? It's it's both, but but um, that's that's true, and and it was like some dystopian thought experiment when she came up with that forty years ago, um, and, and and yet and yet it is we incumbent upon us all who imagine ourselves members of the reality based community to do that and to do the fact checking and and. And of course, the digital age has 
is is what finally uh, ha- both permitted alternative realities and alternative facts to be uh, propagated so promiscuously and uh, obliges us and in, in, in its way permits us to to say, no, 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 that's simply not true uh, whenever we can. And that is uh, as boring as it can be. Uh, well, one of our, I think, great civic obligations uh, for the present moment going forward. Although I was going to talk about this later, but let's talk about it now since we're, we're on this. So, you know, I mean, just I don't know. We can pick a case study. So in the middle of the campaign, what does Trump say? He says that um, after 9-11, uh, there were thousands of Muslims across the river in Jersey and Patterson and Jersey City and places like that celebrating uh, a Simultaneously with 9-11. He also goes on to say he saw it on television. Uh, he, he watched it on television. So, in fact, all the fact-checking institutions ranging from PolitiFact to Fact Checker, which is the Washington Post's Glenn Kessler, uh, to Annenberg's FactCheck.org, to Snopes.com, they all, they all, I mean, it's hard to prove a negative, but they, 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 they just, we, we can't find anybody who says that that happened. Uh, it, it just, we can't find any, and it definitely wasn't on television. You may be conflating it with Palestine in the West Bank celebrating. That was on television. I mean, they, they look at every single aspect of it. They totally fly-spec this thing. But in many respects, back to Box Point, you know, the, 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 the side of the country that was sort of Trump-friendly and Trump-curious said, uh, well, yeah, but that's the same bunch of elites that we don't trust anyway. Who cares what the fact-checkers say? And moreover, it's true-ish. I mean, it, it, and it is the Stephen Colbert idea of truthiness, where, where I mean, even if, no, okay, there weren't thousands of people caught on tape in New Jersey celebrating the fall of the towers and the attacks on 9-11, but, but tell that to Donald Trump and his, and his base, whatever the size of his base is, and, and that even if the, the, it isn't factually correct in that instance, that's just uh, a quibble because they believe, of course, that uh, Muslim Americans are our enemies within. And, and so uh, even if this particular instance didn't happen, it's still true, which is to say people believe they are entitled to their own facts as well as their own opinions. And, and again, that, that has been true for a while and becoming true. But, but when you have a, a president and a White House so reckless in its propagation of of untruth every day, every week, uh, um, um, it, it it becomes a different thing, and 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 what and what one doesn't know is at the end of the Trump administration, um, what what is the what what is the residue? I mean, do 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 people still at that point get to be as um, reckless with truth and falsehood as as he has been allowed to be by the sheer fact that he was elected president of the United States. We'll see. Um, Kurt Anderson, one of the things I think you do very well, though, also is illustrate that this didn't start in 2015, 2016, or 2017. There are ways in which the groundwork has been laid for a long time. I think earlier in our conversation, you've already used the term reality-based community, which was used non in a non-congratulatory tone, supposedly by Karl Rove, I think talking to Ron Susskind. Um, but even before that, okay, we are going to use the Reagan stuff now. Okay, so one of my favorite chapters in your book is about Ronald Reagan. So the, I want you to, first of all, say the first thing about Ronald Reagan, which is that to whatever extent we live in a world in which um, uh, the entertainment we consume and the news that we consume have gotten all muddled up together, um, they were genuinely muddled up in Reagan's mind, right? 
they were genuinely muddled up in Reagan's mind, and in a way that was often, oh, that's cute. Oh, that's charming. Look, he, he calls the, 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 the Pentagon budget for uniforms the wardrobe budget. Oh, look, this, this incident that he believes happened in World War II was actually just in a Dana Andrews movie. Uh, oh, he used the forces with us. Oh, the Star Wars, we call this non-existent um, missile defense system. So, yes, it did. And, and again, um, uh, he, he was uh, uh, making absolutely uh, effective and resonant in, in, in the way he was elected president and, and served as president, the, the use of entertainment and show business as as the very at the very core of the presidency and of presidential politics again he didn't invent it as soon as there was television jack kennedy was using it and 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 uh but but certainly ronald reagan was uh the the that that was an important milestone in in the merger of uh a kind of uh wishful wishful uh fiction with uh the reality of of politics and policy. So, and Kurt, I think he also is one of the figures who starts to establish a slightly different yardstick for truth. So uh, I'm not going to take our listeners through the Iran-Contra scandal. That would take too long. But at a certain point, he went on TV. I think this is towards the end of 86 uh, to address it. Um, so here's, here's clip one. This is Reagan in 86 talking about Iran-Contra. In spite of the wildly speculative and false stories about arms for hostages and alleged ransom payments, we did not, repeat, did not trade weapons or anything else for hostages. All right. So four or five months go by. And the Tower Commission is investigating this. There's parallel uh, investigatory processes going on. And it starts to turn around a little bit. So I think, that, I think it's March of 87. I don't, don't hold me to that date. I think it's March of 87. Um, he gives, this is just a little clip from the next speech he gives about this. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. So, 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 Kurt, See, but that's the turn that wouldn't happen today with this president. Uh, like, oh, I thought this was true then. And Ronald Reagan probably did think that was true when he first said it. I don't know. But 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 what wouldn't have happened is that uh, I was mistaken and this is what really happened. That wouldn't happen today. And that's the change. See, Kurt, I would argue that at that moment, he's kind of assigning almost equivalent existential statuses to those two things. You know, my heart and my best intentions still yes. tell me, still tell <laughs> yes. me that's true. Yes. But the facts and yes. the evidence tell me it's not. And, you know, George Schultz uh, in his memoir, he talked about how um, he said he said about that speech, he said it, it convinced me that Ronald Reagan still truly did not believe that what, what had happened had in fact happened. To him, yeah. the reality was different. I had seen him like this before on other issues. He would go over the script of an event, past or present, in his mind. And once that script was mastered, that was the truth. No fact, no argument, no plea for reconsideration could change his mind. And, and I, I do think that, that Reagan, in a way, when he did that, was sort of saying, well... You could believe the facts or you could believe my heart. <laughs> yes. Well, and that, that sense of what my heart tells me, and, and of course, if it rises to the level of faith, then it's uh, unquestionable. But, but what, no, I, I, this is what my gut tells me. This is what my heart tells me. Yes, that, that is a great example of, of how that uh, was a president 
uh, privileging what his gut told him over over the facts, which he even which he stipulates uh, don't support what he said previously. Right. I mean, it's it's what Colbert in one of the speeches that you cite uh, did as kind of a, as theater. Right. He said, he said it's the same thing. It's kind of like what my gut tells me is true. That's the thing. That's what you really have to trust. Um, and but I mean, Reagan meant that quite seriously. All right. We're talking to Kurt Anderson. The book is Fantasyland. You can see how excited I am about this. How America went hay- haywire. Uh, 500-year history. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. So, what do you do? What do I do? The key figure in an ongoing government charade, the plot to conceal the truth about the existence of extraterrestrials. It's a global conspiracy, actually, with key players in the highest levels of power and that reaches down into the lives of every man, woman, and child on this planet. <laughs> so, of course, no one believes me. I'm, a, I'm an annoyance to my superiors, a joke to my peers. They call me Spooky. Spooky Mulder, whose sister was abducted by aliens when he was just a kid and now chases after little green men with a badge and a gun, shouting to the heavens or anyone who will listen that the fix is in and that the sky is falling. And when it hits, it's going to be the storm of all time. Well, I would say that about does it, Spooky. <laughs> so, by the way, that was Mulder, not Mueller. They're both in the FBI, but Robert Mueller does not believe in those things. So that's that's the X-Files. We're talking to Kurt Anderson. Uh, his book is Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. So, I mean, Kurt, one of the things I think you tease out very well is that, that there is something thrilling to all of us about the questioning of orthodoxy, right? I mean, the reason sure. that Dan Brown had a big hit with the Da Vinci Code is he's ultimately saying, you know, all the stuff that's sort of canonical in the Bible about the story of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, all that stuff, you know, what if that's not true? Wouldn't that be exciting? You know, we, and we love that, right? Yes, yes. Well, and we started that way. I mean, you know, to the degree we were and uh, are a, a, a Protestant country, here's this new theology and, and, and the ones of the believers that came here to start New England, certainly, were the, the most fanatically fervent faction of a fanatically fervent faction of this new religion who, 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 who were, were resisting the establishment orthodoxy of, of Catholicism. So it's been there from the beginning. But yes, absolutely, uh, to have this uh, the, the dots connected in some new way uh, for fictional purposes, that, that's what makes exciting stories. Now, it, it is when those, those exciting stories, those exciting, new, interesting counterfactual fictions um, become pe- many, many people's versions of the facts is when it gets problematic. Right. I, I wish we had time to talk about all the Protestant stuff because it's also stuff that I'm very, I mean, the early Protestant <laughs> stuff. I, I could yeah. do the Cotton Mather stuff and the John Edward stuff, but I think they're just going to have to buy the book because uh, oh, go. we got things we got to do. Um, so I think uh, w- as you put this stuff together, though, in the modern context, uh, it, it becomes clear, and I think you knit a lot of disparate elements together, that if you think the orthodox understanding of reality is flawed and fails into account to take into account 
I don't know, UFOs and, and the realities of psychic powers and cosmic energies. It's not right. that hard to also believe that many kinds of health remedies, botanicals and things like that, are being kept away from you with health by the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, of course, you're not always wrong about that. But um, and, and not too far from there to say, yeah, and maybe vaccines are bad. We don't really know enough about vaccines. We just know this kind of settled record that's been given to us. And it's not a big jump from there to we don't really know that Newtown happened. Maybe this was a staged shooting, right? That a lot of this stuff, I mean, not everybody jumps from each of these toadstools to the right. other, but there's a way in which they represent a kind of understandable progression. That's right. They are, they are not, they don't form a coherent picture of reality, but they do, they are, one can lead to another. They, there is a cascade effect. And, and certainly the, the academic scholarship of people who believe in untrue conspiracies shows very clearly that the greatest predictor of believing in a given conspiracy, and they've tested completely fictional ones that the, that the scholars made up, the, 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 the tendency to believe in one is best predicted by believing in others. So there is an actual cascade effect. And, and no, we're not going to spend all of our time about uh, talking about religion, but the, the extreme religiosity of Americans compared to mm-hmm. people of other countries in, in the developed world does indeed also, not just based on my sense of it or anecdotal uh, discovery of it, but in the scholarship, lead to uh, a belief in, in, in invisible, malign um, conspiracies of, of, of a worldly kind. So, yes, uh, and, and, and again, we're not saying, and people often say to me as I, as I, as when they respond to what I've said in the book, oh, but there are, you, 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 you just, you want to trust everything that they tell you that's true and all the experts say? No, but I, we're talking about the, this, this reflexive rejection of it all, which has become uh, such a problem, uh, and, and that grew out of, of, of the, the Kennedy assassination and the rest of what was going on in the 1960s. Now, you know, as you say, the, there's a way in which religions, religious fervency has stayed um, uh, fast and big in America in a way that, say, in Europe it hasn't. But another argument you make, and, and I, this, this also we could talk about for a couple of hours, is that popular culture in America, I mean, you go back to the time of Bridgeport's own Barnum, and you, I think you say it's somewhere in, in that segment, but even by that time, America's popular culture was a bigger thing than it was in other places. Um, that seems like one of the other really powerful elements in all this is how big our popular culture gets uh, as a dominating way of understanding the world. It's really tr- a dominating way of understanding the world and the degree to which the hours spent, when we get to television certainly, in the the uh, kind of wall-to-wall uh, uh Fiction and fantasy, yes, our 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 knack for making and our uh, tendency to immerse in as much as possible various kinds of entertainment, whether it is the again not to, not to fall back to religion, but whether it's the entertainment that uh, many uh, evangelists in America from the very get go and certainly in the 20th century turned their uh, religious uh, performances into. But but yes, a uh, 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 Barnum and and the rest of popular culture. Yes, there was there were dime museums and 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 some patent medicine shows elsewhere. But but looking at America in the 1800s, you, you, there's just no denying that we were uh, full bore into creating and inventing new uh, forms of of show business and entertainment and 
merging it whenever we could with other realms like retailing and newspapers and 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 the pharmaceutical industry. Right. I would say merging it, I mean, to that last uh, item, uh, I would say merging it in the late 18th century to um, alternative notions of health, the kinds of things that we were talking about in a contemporary context. If you look at those late 1800s, you know, there, there were sort of quackery, there were kind of itinerant people, people who would give entertaining lectures, but at the same time be trying to sell you some strange uh, potion. Uh, you had people like Kellogg, you know, who, in addition to cornflakes, had strange ideas about masturbation and other and all that stuff that's kind of documented in Boyle's novel, The Road to Wellville, right? That that it, there was something entertaining about the idea that there might be all these other nostrums out there that were better than what you were getting. Well, that and and this 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 desire that P.T. Barnum uh, pioneered of of. Well, maybe this is true, maybe this is untrue, but it's entertaining to hear about and and I'm willing to I'm willing to sort of suspend my disbelief a little bit if I am sufficiently excited or entertained by this proposition. That again, not only in America, but man oh man is it it, it is a defining piece of Americanism. All right, we're talking to Kurt Anderson. I want to get to one more point about popular culture, but Chuck from Newington has been sitting on the line right here. I didn't even go out the phone number, Chuck, and you found us. Uh, what's on your mind? Oh, he hung up. He didn't. He didn't stay on the phone line. All right, so I can go to my next point. So, you know, as we develop our popular culture, one of the things that uh, I think happens somewhere around '60s and '70s. Uh, well, you quote Stoppard. You see, he says, uh, Stoppard knew he was onto something new and important. I have a feeling, he said at the time, that almost everybody today is more trying to match himself up with an external image he has of himself, almost as if he's seen himself on a screen. Um, Albert Goldman, writing in his disco uh, treatise in 78, says that everybody sees himself as a star today is both a cliche and a profound truth. Thousands of young men and women have the looks, the clothes, the hairstyling, the drugs, the personal magnetism, the self-confidence, and the history of conquest that proclaims the star. The one thing they lack, talent, is precisely what is most <laughs> lacking in those other nearly identical young people whom the world has acclaimed as stars. Never in the history of showbiz has the gap between the amateur and the professional been so small, nor ever in the history of the world has there been such a rage for exhibitionism. That's 78, uh, Kurt. That's but Extraordinary. Yeah. So that's so, extraordinary. Forty years ago. Yeah. So what's how does that feed into the phenomena that we're talking about now? Well, certainly this overweening desire to be famous, period, for whatever reason, uh, is uh, a, a driving uh, and unfortunate American sort of habit uh, and off sometimes pathology. Um, it was it was until the 20th century um, um, and really until later in the 20th century did uh, people became celebrated for having done something, done something bad, done something good, led an army, become president, written a book, painted a picture. Um, and, and and but really, uh, obviously by 1978, but but in the modern era, I would say in the post-war era, um, uh, the, this idea of fame for its own sake, um, uh, the quality of, of, of being well-known for well-knownness, uh, as Daniel Borstein said, um, became a, a phenomenon that has just gone nonstop. Now, it has very—and and, and that—so that that is a fantasy that people indulge and that in the modern age that things like YouTube uh, allow, allow it to be 
real or kind of sort of real more than it ever has before in terms of of, of uh, erasing the distinction between amateur and professional and, and actually celebrated and 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 sort of uh, quasi celebrity but it, it so there is the fantasy that some large number of Americans plurality maybe majority wish which is to be famous but then also this sense that oh I follow Tom Hanks on Twitter. Therefore, I'm kind of his friend. Uh, and, 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 and all of the ways in which modern media, uh, social media, n- n- as well as, as television and, and, and magazines and so forth that, that cover fame, famous people and make you believe that you know everything about them, um, encourages and indulges this fantasy that, that um, celebrities are our friends and that we really do know them. Um, so, so it's just again not not perhaps the worst part or the most dangerous part of of our uh, uh, um, transmutation into fantasy land, but definitely definitely part of it. Well, and and I think also, um, I mean, we should say that in the past there were people who were kind of famous for being famous. There just weren't that many of them. I mean, I don't know. Was that Evelyn Nesbitt? Was she the woman involved in the Stanford White shooting? She might be an example. She was. She yeah, was. That might be an example of somebody who was basically famous for being famous. But what came with that was notoriety, which was not a thing to be sought after. But it seems to me now that the other thing about this is if you win this game somehow, um, that fame becomes this kind of all-purpose source of validation so that it doesn't strike anybody as odd that Omarosa has a White House post, right? The, the, the notion that you could just sort of toggle back and forth between this simulated world of The Apprentice and the actual yeah. White House is not a problem. Well, it's no odder than Donald Trump being president. It's just analogously odd. Uh, so, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And... and um, um, that fame has and celebrity has become in, so fungible um, rather than the means by which it was gotten being <laughs> being important as it as it used to be. Um, so no, we, we, we are we are in a, in a new moment now. And of course, it also leads to, as one reads, for instance, about the, the experts uh, understandings of why mass shooters do mass shootings. Uh, I mean, it would be too reductive to say. It's because they want to become famous, but that is that is one that is the sort of single leading explanation of of why those people do it. In addition to nursing their own sense of grudges and rejection and so forth, um, it is that it is it is is a different version of desire for frame. And again, happens elsewhere has never happened anywhere else as much as it happens in the United States of America. Yeah. Uh, definitive movie about this, I would say Rupert Pupkin, King of Comedy. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, he's seduced by this, the bonhomie, too, that he sees uh, on these shows. He wants to be part of it, and so he'll do anything to get there. So, just as we go close this segment, because I, I we're going to talk about Trump a, a bit more in the final segment, but it seems to me that, that one, people who listen to this show have heard me, heard this rant before, but, you know, when you think about reality television, what's the fantasy that they sell? I'd say it's the fantasy that you can eliminate people. You can get rid of them, right? Whether it's um, The Voice and American Idol, whether it's Survivor, whether it's The Bachelor, whether it's The Apprentice, the fantasy is the same, that every week you get rid of somebody, which is actually fairly hard to do in your own life. The people you work with, whether you like them or not, they're coming into work tomorrow. Right. You know, the people in your family will be at Thanksgiving dinner this year, just the same way that they were 
last year. It seems to me that one of the real seductive fantasies that Donald Trump embodies from that world of reality television is you can get rid of people you don't like. That's interesting. No, I think that's true. Also, that in the getting rid of somebody, you have agency, which people feel that they don't have much agency in real life. Mm -hmm. Similarly, and and connectedly, I think that um, celebrity itself has in the last century come to be seen in, in, in America and perhaps the rest of the world as as so famous people are the only people who have agency, who have potency in the world. Um, and and uh, and and so reality television takes these sh- nobodies, schlubs, and suddenly gives them both um, a form of celebrity and a form of agency in getting rid of other people or of course, being gotten rid of as well. But um, uh, and and I would say though, the the, the most. I mean, I think I think reality television, and of course, there are many many versions and varieties of that. But I would say reality television ha- has and it's 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 invention in the last twenty years. And by the way, the, there are now more reality television shows on television than there were television shows on television in two thousand. Just so consider that, but I, and I think that that the the nature of reality television, which is which is not uh, documentary depictions of reality in any way, but to one degree or another, scripted versions of improvised versions of these people's realities or or outright game shows. Um, and, and again, it's I think it's been an important piece of how our popular culture, along with something like X Files how our popular culture has blurred the distinctions between reality, realities in the name, and and fiction. <laughs> All right. We're talking to Kurt Anderson, uh, this tremendous book, uh, which will uh, help you understand the mess that you're in right now, if not actually help you get out of the mess, uh, is called Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-year history. We'll take a little break, and then Kurt and I will be back for one final segment. Today's show was produced by either Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, or by the reptilian elite, blood drinking, flesh eating, shape shifting, extraterrestrial reptilian humanoids with only one objective in their cold blooded little heads the domination of public radio. Amanda Fish is the body double for Tiffany Trump. Part of Bill Curry was played by Dr. Oz. On tomorrow's show, the nose gets handcuffed to a bed and makes a profound discovery about female empowerment. You shouldn't let your husband handcuff you to the bed. And now, back to Colin. Especially if your husband is creepy Bruce Greenwood. Yes, we all watched uh, Gerald's Game, and I don't think any of us was improved by that experience. Uh, we're talking to Kurt uh, Anderson. You will be improved by the experience of reading Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-year uh, history. We're very excited to have him here today. So, um, weird again. So, uh, a quote from Tom Rosenstiel, which attach- attaches itself to a new Pew report that came out today. He says, misinformation is not like a plumbing problem you fix. It's a social condition like crime that you must constantly monitor and adjust to. And, and Kurt, that does seem to be one of the places we're in right now, right? As, as you document yeah. very well in the book that, you know, in the waning days of the election, there would be these fictional articles. Pope Francis endorses Donald Trump. WikiLeaks confirms Hillary sold weapons to ISIS. You know, they were being read by maybe small groups of people, but we didn't, nobody had a real strategy for that. 
No, and now we know that 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 problem exists, and maybe we can try to fix that, but um, uh, we don't know what the next version of the problem is going to be in the digital uh, era. Uh, no, it's a very it's a very problematic time uh, in the, in the exactly that way, and and that Rosenstiel quote is a great one because many things have led us to this. Uh, the the technology of Social media is just one piece of it, and and to the degree it's a technological problem or a social media organizational problem, it can be addressed. But but unfortunately, it's a larger problem than that of 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 people being able to exist in their own um, uh, alternative facts, alternative reality worlds, um, um, wall to wall. Uh, web, radio, television versions uh, that serve their particular uh, confirmation biases to, to, to reassure them that the world uh, is, is what they think it is, even though it bears uh, less and less uh, connection to empirical reality that you or I may see. And, and I think also, I hadn't thought about it this way, but in the book you kind of talk about functional synergy, uh, about a so-called cocktail effect. You say we've been drinking bottomless American cocktails mixed from all the different fantasy ingredients. And those various fantasies, conscious and semi-conscious and unconscious, intensify the effects of the others. I mean, that's essentially what we've been saying all the way through this conversation, right? You can't just tease out Dr. Oz and say, well, he's full of claptrap. You know, it's his fault. That we... I mean, he's just one constituent element in this complex mosaic of falsehood. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and I can't, and as I say, you know, the person who believes that um, healing hand energies are going to cure their cancer, that person doesn't, that person doesn't necessarily uh, believe she needs 38 semi-automatic rifles to protect herself. But, but in the aggregate, those, those, those false beliefs and those dubious beliefs um, do 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 synergize. I, I, I think there's no question. This book reads of uh, as a kind of how we got to Trump triptych or something. And and I mean the irony here or the paradox is that you started writing this before you knew that you were going to need an explanation for how we got to Trump. What did you think the yeah. book was when you started out? Well, it's 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 true, and I'm and I was lucky in various ways with the timing that I uh, it, it's a it's a it it collects some among other things some threads I'd been thinking about for a long time, but but then when when we finally, you know, we, I reached 2012, I thought, oh no, this is there's actually something to write here. I thought it would be a history of what it was. I, I thought it was what it was. Now, of course, in the in the course of a couple of years of research and and preparing to write and then writing, it became a different and bigger story than I started out with. But it was it was what it was. Donald Trump wouldn't have been appeared in this book, I don't think, had he not run for president. And maybe maybe I would have dropped a line about The Apprentice somewhere, but probably not. And instead, I I, I begin writing the book in 2014 and and finish a draft uh, uh, in early 2016, just as he's about to wrap up the presidential nomination and here he is and I as as the embodiment of almost all of the major strands of my <laughs> several century long argument uh, as though I have I don't know conjured him into existence like a golem out of my own uh, twisted uh, uh, unconscious no so he he became um, just sort of 
a, a proof and, and, and a poster boy that means that it requires less explanation on my part. So if he hadn't run, let's say he hadn't run for president, it, it would require lots more explanation to, 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 to people. To, here's what this book is, and it makes this argument, and people might go, oh, uh-huh, okay, fine. Uh, once he was running for president, once he had the nomination, uh, uh, I think he it, it served my purposes <laughs> certainly. Now, and once he's president, it not only he's not only there as an illustration of my theses, but as as a kind of to many people a, a seemingly urgent uh, and and dire uh, embodiment of my theses. So. Um, uh, so yes, I'm very lucky. It's I, 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 I it's it's the silver lining of Donald Trump in my life anyway. And I also I realized just a few weeks ago that if I hadn't written this book, and I was working on a novel at the time, and my publisher said, no, 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 this seems timely. She said in 2013 because she's a genius, I guess. Uh, um, if I hadn't written this book and, and then Donald Trump had been nominated and elected president, I probably never would have written it because then it would have seemed like, oh, you're just taking Donald Trump and reverse engineering him to write this history that led to him. So I was very lucky, <laughs> you know, I, I, that, that it that it that it uh, that I that I had this notion and, and my set of aha moments uh, when, when I had them and, and wrote the book. And, and then he appeared to. To, uh, to 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 be the my avatar, and as you know, I mean, I, there are only I don't know a dozen pages in the book about Donald Trump. It's 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 ninety seven percent Trump free. This book, <laughs> true, and and you know one of the things that it got me thinking about again, not for the first time, but you know about Trump's cocktail. You know what is his cocktail? As I was saying before we went on, you and I were born in the same year, and we're baby boomers, but not the way Trump's a baby boomer, right? Because right. I mean, the Army McCarthy hearings happened when he was eight years old, so he had that that paranoid experience of the other about communism. Roy Cohn, of course, became a later mentor and influence. Elvis, who of course is maybe not dead, Kurt, uh, would have been his <laughs> first musical icon, probably. I mean. At that age, it kind of makes sense. Elvis came to him before the Beatles came to him. Uh, Kennedy was shot when he was 17-ish. He dragged JFK into the campaign in terms of Ted Cruz's father. Watergate unfolded when he was 26. I mean, if your book were a novel, he'd be a character in it. He's sort of been through all these pivot moments. He has. And and like many people of his generation, uh, had nothing very much to do with the canonical version of the late 60s. I mean, he was an adult by, you know, he turned 21 in 1967. So he he was, you know, uh, not, not uh, those older baby boomers like Donald Trump were, were, um, um, were older. And, and he, but he, 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 by all appearances, even though he certainly took advantage of the libertinism of the late 60s, he, he, he wasn't part of the uh, drugs and rock and roll, part of the sex, drugs and rock and roll, or or and, and but yes, he 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 is uh, he he has weirdly in in this in this post truth post fact uh, part of his uh, appeal and his proposition selling proposition, which is a sort of everything to him. Uh, he has benefited uh, strangely. Uh, from from what uh, began in the 1960s in terms of find your own truth. You know, oh, that's your truth. This is my truth, whatever. Um, he, he uh, even though he, he was in no sense a 60s guy in the 60s, he has benefited from them. 
So I guess this is the last question uh, for you, Kurt Anderson, author of Fantasyland. Is there a post-declinist version of Kurt Anderson? In other words, are we completely screwed as a result of everything that you have compiled in this book? Or is there some twisting path out of this morass? There may be. And I've never been a declinist. I always scruple to say that. I, 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 you know, I've always made fun. I used to make fun of the Spy magazine was a declinist magazine, my friend. No, we, no, we were, we made fun of things, but we didn't say everything was going to hell. Uh, But, but, but in terms of the, the end of history stuff or more to the point, oh, we're like late Rome. I, I always said, nah, I was always uh, an optimist and and I also a great believer or attendant I tended to believe in the cycles of history as the Schlesingers and others historians have said that you, you know you go one way you you, you cycle out of it I, I I'm not I don't have that absolute confidence or even <laughs> uh, much confidence that we are going to cycle out of this I, I think uh, I think it's a real problem and and in 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 many fundamental ways and 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 I think we can, uh, uh, you know, if, 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 we, if we have these conversations and we rouse uh, those of us who uh, think this is a problem, people, by the way, of the right as well as the left, there are, some pe- there are plenty of people on the right who, who, who find this horrifying as well, and I find them to be the heroes of the present day. Um, if we can get together and and say no 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 uh, this th- this is not true you're not entitled to that opinion and that opinion does not equal fact in all these various ways privately and publicly I think there's a chance that we can we can um, stop it from getting worse um, uh, you know I I I, I I, I'm not convinced of it, but I, but I believe we can. I, I I think there's a chance. I think there's a chance, and I think there's a chance of that. This Trump administration could be such a catastrophe that people that 80 percent of Americans decide, yeah, that was a really bad idea. Um, that perhaps that will be a chastening enough um, realization that. Uh, uh, going back to where the mainstream shouldn't be automatically rejected and 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 truth is not what you make it will maybe get a uh, a, a new set of claims on the American uh, civic consciousness. Right. So that's our big hope. If we drive the car yes. into, into a brick wall at 80 miles an hour, we'll come to realize we need a new driver ed program. Kurt Anderson, there the book go. is Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. Here, Kurt Anderson, uh, right here on WNPR on uh, Sunday afternoons and Wednesday evenings with Studio 360. Thanks for being with me today. Uh, thank you. This was just terrific. Okay. I had fun, too.